Hello, I'm William Henry, and along with Michael and Sylvia Penny, we are discussing some of the main ideas in Ecclesiastes in this series of podcasts. Now, this is the sixth and the final podcast in the series, and in this uh, discussion, we're going to be considering what Solomon has to say about work, about labor, and about toil. So then, what is the place of work in our lives, Mike? Is it just something we reluctantly have to do if you want to put food on the table? Or is there more to it than that? Well, no, I I think it's more than just a necessary evil, Will. I mean, if you remember right back in the Garden of Eden, even before the fall, Adam and Eve were given work to do. I mean, and in Genesis 2.15, it says the Lord... God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. And Adam was also given the responsibility for naming all the animals too, which is presumably more than just dreaming up names, but must have included classifying and categorising them. Yeah, that's, that sounds like an interesting job, actually. But <laughs> what Solomon says about work in Ecclesiastes, he doesn't seem to find it very fulfilling, does he? So what went wrong then? Well, what went wrong was that Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and ate the fruit they were told not to eat. And so God says to them in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So from then on, work and toil became difficult, didn't they? Oh, definitely, exactly, yes. But what does Solomon say about work then? Well, he speaks about it in the first chapter of Ecclesiastes in verse 3, when he asks, What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? And what's his answer? Well, he doesn't really ask the question to get an answer. He's really trying to prove one of his major points. I'll read verses two and three together and you'll see what I mean. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything's meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? So then it's part of his argument that everything is transient, everything's temporary and nothing lasts forever. Yeah, that's true. I mean, think of an agrarian society, Will. They produce food, which, of course, is eaten. So more food has to be produced. And in an industrialised society or a post-industrial society like ours, the same products keep coming off the production line. The same services have to be provided again and again. Even the baristas have to keep pouring the coffee. Oh, now you're talking. Now you're talking. But it's really a circle of life thing, isn't it? That's the way the Lion King puts it anyway. Yes, this circular notion applies to all of life, as we said in the previous podcasts. And Solomon points this out in the verses that follow. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 4 to 11. I won't read them all, but here's just a few to give the flavour. Generations come and generations go. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, they return again. 
What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. <laughs> you can almost hear the tedium in his voice, can't you? Well, there's a novel by Ernest Hemingway called The Sun Also Rises, written while he was in Spain waiting for a bullfight. The title he seems to have pinched from Ecclesiastes. Have you read it? No, I'm afraid I haven't. No, I, I read it. He's an interesting character, Hemingway, almost like Solomon in some ways. Uh, he was brought up in an evangelical Christian family, but then changed to Catholicism and married his first wife. Then they were divorced and, well, without going into all the details, he had four wives and he became rather indifferent towards religion, even though a number of his writings have Christian themes. Uh, some commentators, well, well, the commentators have different ideas as to whether or not he ended up as an atheist or an agnostic or what. Some have, some says he struggled with finding a meaning to life. Certainly sounds a bit like a modern Solomon, doesn't he? But Solomon does get some satisfaction from his work, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He says this in chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. And yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Yeah, I really like that phrase, a, a chasing after the wind. It's a bit like looking for the end of a rainbow, isn't it? But it really does paint a picture of the futility and the hopelessness of it all. Yes, and yet he does also say that his heart took delight in his labour, and he says this was his reward. He seems to have enjoyed his work while he was doing it. It was only afterwards, when he thought about what it all meant, that he had a problem. For instance, in verse 17 of the same chapter, chapter 2, he says, so I hated life because the work that's done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it's meaningless, a chasing after the wind. But does Solomon say anything about why all the work that he was doing so, was so grievous to him, as he puts it? Well, when he thinks of the motivation as to why people work hard, he doesn't come up with any positive conclusions. I mean, in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 4, he says, I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. Well, I guess that envy is a motivation for some people, but it's kind of negative, isn't it? It's also a bit self-destroying if all you're doing is trying to keep up with the Joneses and being jealous of other people's achievement. It's likely to result in a pretty miserable life, isn't it? So would we be better off not working then? Well, Solomon talks about that too. In verse 5 of chapter 4, he says, Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. Yeah, he's right, isn't he? If you do nothing, you'll come to ruin. But if you burst a gut to overachieve, you'll never be satisfied. Chasing the wind again. Better to be somewhere in between, maybe, with enough to eat and being able to live a peaceful life. Yeah, I like that, Will, yeah. You know, it reminds me a bit of Mr. Micawber in Charles Dickens's David Copperfield. Putting it in modern money, Micawber said this, If it costs me £100 a week to live and I earn £95, I am of all men most miserable. 
But if it costs me £100 a week to live and I earn £105, I'm of all men most happy. Yes, it's a good point. But maybe not the reasons for uh, why work is so grievous? Well, there's another reason in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 2. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. And yet they'll have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. So this too is meaningless. Yeah, that's what can happen if you have a massive inheritance, isn't it? And Solomon sees this as a problem for many people, as he goes on to saying in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 20 to 21, where he says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun, for a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who hasn't toiled for it. This too is meaningless, and it's a great misfortune. Yes, it's frustrating, isn't it, for someone who's worked hard to create wealth and then has to leave it to someone who hasn't worked for it, especially if it all goes to rack and ruin. Yes, and it can create difficulties for the people who receive the inheritance too. No, yeah, you're right there. Um, I I know one young couple, I think they were in their mid-30s, who were left a large inheritance when his father died. So how did it affect them? Well... They gave up work. But after 10 years or so, the money was running low. And so they had to look for another job. But they could not find jobs at the level they had before they quit. So they ended up doing rather menial and tedious work. This, I think Solomon would say, is a great misfortune. And I think also, with the increase in house prices in this country, many young people will inherit significant amounts. Yeah, I think it can be a problem for anybody who finds themselves suddenly receiving a huge lump of money that they haven't worked for. Oh, that's right. You hear a lot of sad stories of ordinary people who have won the lottery, for example, and their lives have been ruined because they couldn't handle such wealth. Okay, but hang on, we're in a danger of going back to look at Mm. the subject of the last podcast again. That was wealth and riches. Let's try and keep our focus here on on work and labour. We're thinking about the problem of people not being capable of carrying on the good work of the person before them. Yeah, but Solomon also notes that even if your successor is capable, what can he do apart from what has already been done? In Ecclesiastes 12.2, he says, what more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Now, that's right. Solomon is one of the wisest men who have ever lived. How could he expect his successor to exceed his achievements? As he says in more than one place, there is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, and there's another issue too. What if you've got nobody to leave it to? Well, yes, Solomon deals with this as well, calling it a miserable business. In Ecclesiastes 4 verse 8, he says this, There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, and yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Right, what's the point? At least the tax man would be happy when he dies, because he can't take it with him. 
<laughs> That's true. The tax man would be very happy, Will. Dead right there. But as you know, Solomon also talks about not being able to take it with you when you go. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 15 to 17, we read, Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. This is, this is really depressing, isn't it? I mean, after the fall of Adam and Eve... We've seen that 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 work becomes difficult. Solomon sees it as repetitive, with no lasting value because everything's transient, everything is passing. You slave all your life, envying the people around you, trying to keep up with them. But even if you manage to do that, you die and have to leave everything to someone else who may squander it. And even if they don't, what can they do apart from what's already been done? Oh, this is hopeless. Has Solomon got anything positive to say about work? Well, yes. Actually, he sees finding satisfaction from work as a gift of God. In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, he says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see is from the hand of God. For without him... Who can eat or find enjoyment? And he gives the same answer to a similar question in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 9. What do workers gain from their toil? And the answer is that each of them, that is the workers, may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. That's in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 13. And we also touched on this earlier in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 10, where Solomon said he took delight in all his work. In other words, working was its own reward. Yeah, but if working is its own reward, why does Solomon think it's a burden? In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 10, he speaks of the burden God has laid on the human race. What's the burden then, having to work? No, no, I don't think work itself is the burden. Solomon goes on to describe the burden, I think it's the burden he describes in the next few verses. He says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. And that's, in, uh, that's what he says in verses 11 to 12 of Ecclesiastes 3. And it's on the basis of that that he concludes that eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in your toil is the gift of God. Yeah, but that's not very satisfactory, is it? God has set eternity in our hearts. We know instinctively that there is something more than what we can see around us. But according to Solomon, we don't know what God's doing. Therefore, the best we can do is to be happy in our work, to do good, whatever that means, and enjoy life. If we're able to do that, Solomon says, it's a gift of God. So what, what's unsatisfactory about that? But anyway, what, what is this burden? Any idea, Will? Well, it seems to me that it's the fact that we're in the dark about what's going on that is the burden. 
Solomon seems to be aware of judgment to come, but his solution seems to be, you know, keep calm and carry on. Enjoy your work, even if it has no lasting value. Be a moral person and hope for the best. Well, perhaps this dissatisfaction is why Solomon frequently talks about work and life in such negative terms. For example, in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 18 to 20, he, he says again, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is the gift of God. But then he adds, they seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. <laughs> yes, he seems to be saying that we should work really hard so that we don't have time to reflect on how futile it is what we're doing. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of other places where you get the same cynicism from Solomon. I mean, in Ecclesiastes 8.14, Solomon bemoans the fact that sometimes the righteous get what the wicked deserve and that the wicked get what the righteous deserve. And then he goes on and says this, this too is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will come accompany them in their toil all the days of their life that God has given them under the sun. Okay, so enjoy yourself, even if the outcome is unfair and the whole thing's transitory anyway. Any other passages? Well, towards the end of the book, in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for in the realm of the dead where you're going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. There you are again. Throw yourself into your work, because you're going to die and you won't be able to work then. <laughs> what a prospect. <laughs> yeah, but wait a minute, Will. Solomon is very aware that there's a judgment to come after death. He doesn't see death as oblivion for the whole of eternity. We've mentioned this before, but see how he finishes his book. This is what he says. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And that's how he ends the book in Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Yes, and that's really good general advice for everybody. Well, yes, it is, but it is somewhat limited, isn't it? It sounds as if God's going to weigh up all your deeds one at a time, the good ones on one side, the bad ones on the other, and then see what the balance is. You're only saying that because you're an accountant, Will. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> it is rather a pagan notion of God's judgment, isn't it? I mean, I was reading in Second Kings 23 uh, a week or two ago, and there it talks about King Josiah of Judah, who was a good king and followed the Lord. He destroyed a lot of the pagan worship in Judah. And it says this about him. The king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption, the ones Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the people of Anam. That's in uh, 2 Kings 23, verse 13. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, um... I think we've said this before, 
Solomon, after a great start, didn't follow the Lord wholeheartedly in his later life. He dabbled in worship of these pagan gods. I mean, because his pagan wives had turned his head away from the one true God, I think. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of his advice in the face of death, although it refers to the fear of God, particularly in relation to work and toil, a lot of his advice is compromised by the influences of the practices of these vile and detestable gods and goddesses that were worshipped by the surrounding nations. And it's interesting that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon never refers to God as Jehovah, that is, the Lord, the covenant name of Israel's God. Rather, we read only of Elohim, God the Almighty, the Creator, who is arguably a more remote God than Jehovah, the God of relationship. Yes, it, 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 it's as if he's lost sight of the close relationship he had with the Lord at the start of his reign. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 3, sorry, 1 Kings 3, 7, when Solomon asked the Lord for wisdom, just after he was appointed to the throne of Israel, he addressed him as Lord my God, which is the name he doesn't use in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, that's right. But... I think when we look at the Lord's progressive revelation of himself and his will throughout the rest of the Old and New Testaments, I think what we find is that he shows Christian people a very different attitude towards work compared with Solomon's, which is fairly pessimistic in its outlook. Yes, that's true, isn't it? Hmm. Right at the beginning, as you said earlier, Mike, God set Adam to work in the Garden of Eden before he disobeyed him. So even in his unfallen state, Adam was expected to work. Yeah, right. So work is not a necessary evil. It's part of God's plan for us. And therefore, it must involve more than just being a means of making money to give ourselves enough to eat or even to become rich. Okay, so what does the New Testament have to say about work then? Well, Jesus told more than one parable about work, didn't he? We got the parable of the talents where servants were given different amounts of money by their master and told to work with it while he was away. And when he came back, the ones who had worked to increase their funds were commended. And the one who buried his talent in the ground was condemned. Yeah, then there's uh, you've got the story about the two men who built houses. The wise man built on the rock and the foolish man built on the sand. And we know that when the storm came, the house on the sand fell flat. It collapsed. But wasn't Jesus trying to get a lesson across that was more than just about work and money and how to build houses? Yeah, of course he was. But it does make the point that he approved of good work and condemned laziness. But what about in the epistles? Does Paul have anything to say about work and how we should regard it? Oh, yeah, he does, yeah. And he takes the same line as Jesus did towards work. Uh, he says to the Thessalonian Christians, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that in your daily life you may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12. And Paul also makes himself an example by saying, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. And that's also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. So again, you get the same idea that he works hard 
so as not to depend on anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a particularly relevant to a small community living together and sharing everything. If Sudman doesn't work, simply they would be a burden. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, But even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who's unwilling to work shall not eat. Ooh, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? What if people are unable to find work or they can't find work to do? Well, I don't think Paul was really thinking about that situation. Those who are unable to work, like the aged widows or others, perhaps due to illness or injury or whatever, they would be looked after. And that's the way in our society too, you know, but uh, not always as efficient and effective as it as it could be, I think. Okay, so Paul is saying that we're expected to work hard and diligently. Any other places, you think, where we get instruction on this? I think that the teaching Paul gives to Christian slaves is very relevant to a Christian's work situation. And he says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eyes are on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. And that's in Ephesians 6.6. 6. So that's interesting. They were to work as if they were working for the Lord, not just for the slave master, and working well is described as doing the will of God from the heart. Yes, and Paul goes on to really reinforce that point. He says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And that's in Ephesians 6, 7. So their reward from the Lord will be based on the quality of their work as slaves. Yeah, but um, Paul has things to say about the slave masters also, you know. Uh, in Ephesians 6, 9, he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So there's good advice for any of us who have people working for us. No bullying, treat them fairly, sincerely and well, because we too have a master in heaven. I think it's extremely important. Solomon is right when he emphasises the importance of our daily work as being a gift of God. But what Paul is arguing here is that it's more than that. It's not just a gift from God, it's a service for God. Yes, certainly. In the past, and sadly still today, there are some Christians who think that there is a difference between what we do directly for the Lord in church and what we do in our secular work, which is sometimes regarded as less important. Yeah. And we covered this in podcast six in our series on wisdom under the title uh, Wisdom and Work. Do you remember? Yeah, exactly. And in that podcast, I think we covered it in quite a bit of detail. But the fact is that there's no sacred secular divide. Everything we do is for the Lord rather than for only our bosses. And it's part of our service for him. That ref really affects our commitment to do high quality work all the time. And also, I think it affects the way we interact with our colleagues, the way we interact with our bosses, and also with our subordinates. And for many Christian believers, their main service for the Lord is their secular work. That's right. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Divine Dance. It's by 
uh, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan priest. And he says this, you can be a homemaker in a grocery store or a construction worker at a work site. It doesn't matter. It's all inherently sacred and deeply satisfying. Mm, that's good. The Christian faith is something that has to be lived out in every aspect of our lives. Okay, then. So coming back to Ecclesiastes, what have we learned from Solomon? Can we sum it up? Well, I think the primary lesson is that everything is transitory. Work, pleasure, riches, it's all fleeting, it's all passing. Even wisdom, although it's better than folly, is ultimately temporary because both the wise and the foolish go to the same place. Yes, death is the great leveller, isn't it? We all have to face it, and it makes a mockery of our hopes and our ambitions. Ah, uh, but Solomon was also aware of the reckoning that's to come after death, wasn't he? He knew that God would hold everyone accountable for what they do, whether good or bad. Yep. But uh, as we've discussed in earlier podcasts, for the Christian, the outlook is different because our sins are forgiven through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this should impact all aspects of our life here on earth. Be God because God calls us to live for Christ in everything we do and everything we are. The Lord has redeemed the whole person and every part of our lives belong to him. And as we have also seen, the Lord will reward each one of us in eternal life for the good work that we have done in his name while we've been here on earth. Yeah, and that's a great incentive to work well, isn't it, at whatever mm -hmm. we do. Well, we've come to the end of our podcasts on Ecclesiastes. We hope you've enjoyed them and we hope you found them helpful. Thank you very much for listening.